finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and we talk about it. Andrea is a librarian, and she's also my mom. Every other episode is about a comic book. This episode is about a comic book. So, everybody, the game is afoot. Yeah, it's a whole dang foot. I have already made that joke on this podcast in a previous episode, I think. Yeah, we've read Clue Candlestick by uh, Dash Shaw, which I think it makes this the... It is both the shortest and the most recent comic we've ever covered on this podcast, I think. Destroyer maybe might have been closer to its publication date where we recorded the podcast, but I actually don't think that's the case. Well, definitely is the shortest because it's only three issues. Mm-hmm. Combined to make one graphic novel. Yeah. And it was published in 2020. Who was the publisher? IDW. IDW. A publisher who I don't know what the letters of their name stand for. I think it's like... Nope. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what that, what they stand for. But IDW does a lot of licensed comics. Um, and they have a reputation for doing pretty high quality licensed comics overall as compared to someone uh, like a Dynamite... Or whatever, who has a little bit of a shakier reputation. Uh, IDW does uh, Ninja Turtles, Transformers, G.I. Joe, Sonic the Hedgehog, and a whole mess of other stuff. They've done like some X-Files comics and I all saw, sorts of stuff. I saw on their website that they're promoting, they're doing a comic series based on the Netflix series Glow. Okay, yeah. That makes total sense that they would do something like that. Uh I've read a bunch of those those IDW licensed comics, but occasionally they do something. Uh, you know, most of those are sort of written with this very like uh, modern kind of like post Claremont X Men sort of continuity heavy serialized ongoing story philosophy. They try to like streamline um, a lot of the sort of mythology of the works they're doing to create rather than something that's a um, you know, a direct continuation of the work. They try to to present, like, their, like, own sort of, like, clean, comic-specific version of that continuity. They did that for Ninja Turtles. They did it for, for Transformers and stuff like that. But then occasionally they'll give, like, a more sort of idiosyncratic creator license to do something really sort of off-the-beaten-path and kind of weird with one of their properties. This is an instance of that. Another one would be... Uh, the Tom Scioli's Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, which then also led into one of the weirdest licensed comics of all time, which is the Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, the movie, the comic, where he made a comic adaptation of a non-existent movie adaptation of his own book. And so this is along those lines. Dash Shaw is a, you know, he's a singular cartoonist. He's writing and drawing this whole thing. Um... And they seems like they just kind of let him go wild with the concept of Clue. Well, of course, the board game. If you didn't pick up, this is based on the board game. What do you know about the artist, the creator of this comic? I mean, I don't know much about his like personal life or anything, but I'm familiar with his work. Uh, he's done a few other comics. I first became aware of him because of a webcomic he did called Body World, which was this kind of... Um, kind of a sci-fi story uh set in this like one particular town 
with like a bunch of intersecting characters and then the kind of fantastical element is this plant that seems to grow only in the town that when consumed as a drug kind of breaks down the barriers between people um and their bodies and their minds and stuff and there's like a sort of uh very obviously hunter s thompson inspired like botanist psychonaut character who's sort of our entry into the town and that did this thing where on the website there was like every the first panel of every comic was a little key that showed you a a square segment of a map in which that strip took place and then that was hyperlinked to a big full map on the page so you could click on that and click back and forth to track sort of where in physical space all the characters were in relation to each other and where how the story was unfolding across this town, you know, which was like the... You put a lot of work into that setting. And they did a cool thing when they published it physically where the book was um, printed so that the the edge where the binding is... I don't know if there's a term for that. But you, you don't... The gutter? Well, no, I mean like the side of the page where it is bound right that's the it was printed so that was the top of the page so you folded the book open almost like a legal pad and on the inside cover there was a flap that folded out with the map so you would fold it up and you would always have the map at the side and so you could continually cross-reference it uh which was a cool way of getting oh like physically what they had done digitally with the web comic and the other big thing, like, after that, I looked for more of his stuff. He, he had a, I think before Body World, but it might have been after, a, a much longer graphic novel called Bottomless Belly Button that's, like, about uh, a fa- It's a family drama, essentially. And that, he does a lot of, like, ex- formal experimentation uh, with, like, all of a sudden, like, to get across, like, what's happening in your character's mindset. It'll turn into, like, this fictional strip and it's like okay here's like the kid's perspective and it looks like a calvin and Hobbes strip or like you know all sorts of stuff like that i think there's like this has this book has some puzzles in it and i think there may be even be some puzzles in bottomless belly button but that's like all in service of telling this intergenerational family drama uh and then uh he did this i think that he, he has got at least one other longer work that i know of called doctors which i haven't read yet which is like a sci-fi story about death uh, it looks like he also does just some animation. And uh, he has a movie coming out in 2021. So, but I mean, that was only, the only mention I found of that was on his Wikipedia page. So. Okay. So this book is based on the board game Clue. And I guess we should start out by saying that we did extensive research by playing Dungeons and Dragons themed Clue, which <laughs> I won two times in a row. So I'm now an expert to talk about the game of Clue. Yeah, totally. Uh, we picked this book to do a while ago, and then completely unrelated to that, like I received a Clue board game for my birthday, and you received a Clue board game for Christmas. Right, right. So Clue was invented in England in 1943 by Anthony E. Pratt, who was a... Um, musician who was nostalgic for this trend i guess in the 1930s in england which were called murder parties we talked a little bit about these when we did um the the agatha christie story right and that's a direct response um 
even in some of her stories, like her Perot stories, there's mention of Perot working as a paid consultant for murder parties. He would go to these castles or these mansions in the countryside, stay for a paid weekend, and host a fake murder. Yeah, well, look, famously, like, the, the, uh, Spoilers for the ABC murders. The bad guy, no, even, the only reason he is even really aware of Perot enough to do his plot is because he was at one of those. Right. So in England, it's called Cluedo, which I have no reason. I don't understand why. I guess to make it sound more like a game, maybe. Yeah. So it's kind of like an iconic game. It, everyone in their childhood remembers at some point playing some version of Clue. Um I'm most familiar with the sort of 70s kind of version of Clue, which is what we had. We didn't always have all the pieces, so we had to sort of make do and say, like, a button was supposed to be the rope or whatever. Which, like, that, the aesthetic of the 70s Clue, but also the aesthetic of, like, here's all the stuff in your drawer that you use for family game night is very much the aesthetic that Dashaw is riffing off of in this book. Right, right. So, and then I guess another thing to mention, which is kind of puts Clue... In the American pop culture, you know, phenomena is the 1985 movie, yes. which has become a cult classic. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of, I think that it's, Clue is kind of like a Christmas carol in that even if you've never played the game of Clue, you understand the basics of playing Clue. Yeah, yeah. So. That's what, one of the things I like about this graphic novel. It kind of keeps the essence of the game. Mm-hmm. But the characters are kind of like, they're the same characters from the game. They're the same murder instruments. Even Mr. Body is in it. And I, from what I understand, Mr. Body is only in the American versions mm. of Clue. So Mr. Body is in it, and it's his mansion. And his mansion is the board from the game Clue. Yeah, but he does a thing where that I appreciate, where he is not slavishly devoted to the structure of the game. Like, Mr. Body is the second person that dies, and there are three murders throughout the course of the story. Yeah, and I think also the motive for the murders is completely different. Because my first thought, I hadn't read the book yet, but one of my ideas I had is, is like, is this sort of like making up backstories for the characters and explaining the murder, but it's a little more complicated than that because the backstories that he creates for the characters are not the backstories that you would expect to find if you were writing backstories for the characters in the game. He kind of uses the framework of the of the you know, this cast of iconic characters and the structure of the game to kind of riff out and do his sort of own thing. It ends up being kind of this exploration of, like, um, violence and, like, whether or not objects have souls ends up being, like, a really big part of this. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is he uses a lot of, and I will talk about this a lot once we get into the actual story, he uses visual clues that are supposed to help you solve the mystery, but he also uses them in a really unique way. Like, in some of the stories where there's, like, audible clues, instead of having, like, a sound bubble with the sound, he'll have an arrow, and the arrow will be pointing to the object and said, makes a clinking sound or something like that, which kind of gives you 
sort of, you know, like a visual way to sort of immerse yourself into this story, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, it kind of gives the reader, uh, like, Sherlock vision. Yeah, and I kind of, I like that. I think that's kind of really, like, on trend for the, like, exactly like Sherlock. You know, like, when, when the detective is solving the mystery and you see, like, the computer code and you see little mini flashbacks about what's going on so you can put the clues together yourself. He does that in sort of a visual and a sort of artistic way. And I like that. I like that there's like a lot of like visual gags. There's a lot of stuff going on in the background or there's little side information that makes it feel like you're inside and you're getting like a sneak peek into what's going on. And then... I don't know. It's just weird. Like, do you want to get into the plot? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, like, stylistically, but I was going to compare this to anything. I mean, I think there's a lot of, like, sort of, there's a lot of puzzle book. in. like, I feel like this is more, more influenced by stuff outside of comics than it is by comics. I feel like there's a lot of, like, puzzle book and I Spy and stuff like that in this. And it's also, like, kind of Wes Anderson-y. Oh, definitely. But you know, like, when you would get, like, a copy of, like, Highlights? There was always a point where a kid got a subscription to Highlights whether through school or whatever. And the first day that you got it, when it was brand new before any other kid had worked on the puzzles, you got to go through and it would have like these anagrams and crosswords and, you know, different sort of nonograms that you could do to sort of like solve these like intellectual puzzles. It actually has that in there, which I think is really nice. Yeah. So we open with what... It's very, it's like, this could be a flash forward, or it could be, like, just a dream of the future. But we're introduced to Professor Plum, uh, who is dreaming of a whistle. Right. And, and like, there's imagery of, like, a woman whistling. And then he's awoken by his postman. And we get the first, like, instance of this sort of stylistic thing they do, where, like, a lot of the less important characters are drawn with less detail. They're more sort of cartoonish than the main characters. Because uh, we get he's awoken by his postman arriving, who gives him a letter, basically, which is uh, encoded in a specific, in a cipher that he has to decode. And so that's kind of like, the thing with Professor Plum in this is that he's like, he's the puzzle guy. He's, uh, you know, he's into codes and stuff. He's also the guy that Mr. Body has authenticate items for his collection. That's one of the things I think is very interesting about this is that instead of just being murder weapons, they're almost like artifacts. Like each of the weapons in the story are special artifacts that are important to Mr. Body. Yeah. So he, like this, uh, well, he has this uh, this conversation with his postman where he tell, the postman tells him to take some malted milk with a drop of honey and that'll help him sleep. Uh, and then he gives him the letter, and he deciphers the codex. And what he ends up learning is that Mr. Bonnie has, is fearful for his life because he's been receiving death threats. And he wants to invite um, a bunch of people to his mansion and to basically give away his collection. And he has these specific items that he wants to give away that are the rope that hanged Calico Jack, which that's from Professor Plum, I guess. This lead pipe that was that killed Galenaeus. It's one of the first lead pipes from Rome. Mm-hmm. And that was given to him by a spicy colonel. <laughs> the revolver that killed President Garfield that he got from a former mob man. And 
the wrench that supposedly fixed Albert Camus. Was Albert Camus killed with a wrench? I have no idea. Or was he killed? I, did he die in a car accident? I meant to look that up. I never did. Let's look it up right now. Um, which he got from a woman who we will later see is almost certainly supposed to be uh, Miss Scarlet. I'm going to look up how Albert Camus died. Because these are all involved in, like, murders and death. So I assume that the life... Death. Um, Car, yeah, died in a car accident. So I guess the idea here is that someone sabotaged his car. Uh, Jack the Ripper's knife, which is given to him by his maid. Of course. And a candlestick... um, which he doesn't really seem... Which was given to him by a wealthy collector after her husband's premature death. But there's no, like, definitive, like, story about what the violence this candlestick did. But we do find out throughout the course of the story. So then Professor Plum goes to the mansion. There's, like, like a little clever thing where uh, all of their keys into the mansion are under these stone pieces that look like the, the pawns from the game. Right, and they're color-coded to the character. He notes that someone's watching him when he arrives, uh, and then he sits down at the table, and so we get all the people there, you know, they're the characters from the game, uh, Ms. Peacock, Colonel Mustard, Mr. Green, Ms. Scarlet, Ms. White, and, you know, and then Miss, but Mr. Body is alive. Right, and he's hosting this dinner party, and his maid is there. Oh, and also, which is going on, which is the same thing in the movie, and supposedly in the board game is there's a terrible storm going on and it's going to take the roads are washed out and mm. they're kind of in in essence trapped in this mansion yeah 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 uh yeah so they start to have this conversation and colonel mustard uh colonel mustard is an oversharer yeah so he starts talking about <laughs> how it's this is very like, it's. I, I, I could see part. someone being like, "This is stupid." I think it's really funny. He he starts talking about how uh, he was in the war, and after he returned from the war, there was a price on his head, and so all the dudes in his force uh, took secret name, took code names based on condiments. Of course. And what he says specifically is because we wanted to be ubiquitous, only seen when actions required of it, and ultimately to blend in. <laughs> So that's why he's mustard is because and he becomes like paranoid um, and sort of morbidly fascinated by the idea that anyone could be out to get him. And he's like constantly watching everyone's line of sight and he's just always on edge. And then she like Miss Peacock asks him, how, like, how could he find happiness? And he says, happiness is overrated. Like a poet, I forfeit happiness for a heightened sensitivity. And then he starts talking about this idea that becomes very important for the rest of the story of, like, objects having motivations. And he's, like, basically he has decided that in his worldview, um, function equals desire, right? So a plant grows because a plant wants to grow. And it wouldn't grow if it didn't want to grow. Uh, insects want to eat, and so like he he this like extends in the, to the most sinister way to you know these objects that Mister Body has that have been used in murders, these objects that have killed, presumably because in Colonel Mustard's view they want to kill, 
but then like there there is the, it's this very dehumanizing philosophy when it's applied to humans where it's like you know people work nine to five jobs that they don't want to do but then it's like well you're doing it so you want to do it it's a very like i don't know it's a very it's a dehumanizing philosophy but it also kind of makes sense that a guy who would come from this military background would have this worldview and then uh they bring up the items and he starts freaking out about the candlestick he says it does not want to hold candles it has murderous motives Beware the candlestick. And then there's a very Mignola sort of panel where the lightning flashes and the background is yellow and he's in silhouette, but his monocle is still illuminated. And he's shot and he dies. Well, yeah, the lights go out, there's a shot, and then the lights come back on and we see Colonel Mustard is is dying. This Mm. is my favorite part where he's right about to die and he says, tell Ketchup I loved him. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) So then... (laughs) And then also, later on, they decide they're going to move them to the cooler, and then they said, let's put them next to the hams. Yeah, let's put, the, put mustard next to the ham. And they're like, that's a fleeting, like, that's the perfect place for him. Uh, we also get this one panel, which is a recurring thing. Every time somebody dies, there's this very cartoony, like, almost, like, editorial cartoon-looking panel of them arriving at the pearly gates. Yes. <laughs> Just so you know they're dead. So there's never any ambiguity about whether or not a character is dead when they die. We see them literally arrive at heaven in one pan. And it's like, that's the other thing is I feel like there's something slightly subversive about the fact that every character goes to heaven, even as they are all revealed to be awful people. Yeah, I think, and then during this sort of scene where Colonel Mustard dies, they start accusing each other of different things and talking about who had access to the gun and what happened. And then I like this part where they decide they're going to investigate and they're going to pair up. And then the maid brings out, she's like, I have a map Mm -hmm. of the mansion. She brings out the map and it's the board to the game. Yeah. And then they decide they're going to, this is like one of the things where it gets kind of interactive. They decide to pair up and search. And then there's a panel that shows the game and it shows you where each of the teams are going. Yeah, and it gives us rules for how people move. And so I, I didn't do this, but one of the one of the little gimmicks of the book is that you can figure out the murder beforehand. So if you look at those rules and look at where people end up, you can like trace their movements to try and figure out who was in the right place to do the murder. But you also need the notable thing about this, which will be relevant later, is it's not exactly the game board because what it doesn't show are the secret passages. Right, which becomes a big plot point later on. This, I, I think this is, a, this is a very smart adaptation of Clue, I think. He did a lot of thinking about how Clue works as a game in order to write this. I think also we kind of now start to realize that Mr. Body is a, a weirdo. Yeah, because so well, one of the things that happens when they're splitting up is Mr. Green, who is the, the former mob man. He's very nervous. Yeah. He does not want to be paired up with Mr. Peacock, with Professor, no. He does not want to be paired up with Professor Plum because Plum was the closest to the gun. And he insists on being paired up with Mrs. Peacock. So Plum bears up with Mrs. White, or Ms. White. I can't remember which one's which. The maid? The maid. Yeah. I know she's white. I can't remember if it's Miss or Ms. You can just call her Ms. He bears I... up with White. And they're, they're walking around. They see that he, Mr. Body has this art collection where every piece is a representation of uh, Miss Scarlet. Right. And then we also, I mean, we know that he, at some point, spends an enormous amount of time amassing this large collection of murder weapons. Yeah. 
This is also when the ham and mustard thing, because Scarlet and Body go and take mustard to the cooler, and then the other four split off into two and go searching for something. Uh, and then it was it's during this part where Professor Plum asks White how she got Jack Ripper's knife. And she explains that, like, it's not Jack Ripper's knife. Probably not. It's probably not Jack Ripper's knife. Or no. No, 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 no. She explains that she was dating a guy who collected serial killer memorabilia and he gave her the knife. And she gives it to Body after his wife passes away to kind of cement their friendship. Yeah, but it's clear that she isn't... It's probably not Jack Roper's knife. He never gets it authenticated. No. She makes it up on the spot. She's just trying to connect with this guy who is obsessed with death. And she sort of reflects him in herself by having this knife. And that's the the way to, like, connect with him. And it's, like, this illustration of, like, how sort of, like, self-centered Mr. Body is. And then also we learn that Professor Plum is the one who does the authentications for Mr. Body, and he hasn't seen the knife. Yeah. And then White has an idea, and she goes to check the stones... She checks her own, and while that is happening, uh, someone hits Mr. Body in the back of the head with the lead pipe. Right. In the conservatory. And it's the, the most obvious suspect is Scarlet, because she's the one who's there. But then we get a sequence of White checking all the pieces, and all the keys are gone, except for the one under Peacock's piece. So then she realizes that Peacock came with somebody else who already, who used their key. So, Miss Peacock has a partner. Yeah. And then we get the last page of this issue is Scarlet's, like, with her head on Mr. Body's body's chest. And she says, uh, I'd never kill Body. I didn't love him enough to kill him. And then we get a little insert panel of him arriving at the Pearly Gates. And Colonel Mustard is, like, waving at him right. behind St. Peter. And that's the end of issue one. Though issue two is focused on... Well, so what did you think like after you got to the end of this first issue? I was really excited because I was kind of getting into the mystery. Mm-hmm. And I liked this sort of interaction that the characters were having. And I was really starting to figure out... Like, there were things that I really wanted to learn more about. I wanted to learn more about Miss Scarlet and the paintings and mm-hmm. her relationship with Mr. Body. And then I wanted to know why Mr. Green was so nervous and, you know, Professor Plum was like, he was very weird from the start. And yeah. he's kind of like, gives you like a suspicious vibe. But they all give you a suspicious vibe. Even the maid. Yeah, yeah. This is a good job of like, by the end of issue one, I don't think there's really any one figure is the is obviously the murderer. Um, it, You do know that it's not white, though. Well, that's the thing that issue one ends, because well, she's checking the things when the, when the murder happens. Right. So she's the one that we know definitively isn't, at least isn't the murderer of Mr. Body. It's possible they could do a twist and there's two murderers. And she, I don't think at this point she knows that Mr. Body is dead. No. I think should we see, we might see them tell her. I don't remember. Um, but yeah, so issue two is focused on Miss Scarlet. And it's kind of like a deconstruction of the idea of the muse. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, she's literally a femme fatale. Yeah, she's like a black widow, but instead of marrying dudes and murdering them, she has them make art of her, and then she murders them. Right, and then Body gets obsessed. 
well, both with Miss Scarlet, because at one point he professes love to her, but then also he becomes obsessed with acquiring the artwork. Yeah, that, so, she's like, we open with her getting, like, painted by this guy. She's giving this, like, speech about, um, the different poisons that were in paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, in the Renaissance era and stuff. And, like, what, oh, no, she she's getting this speech given to her. She... Paints are being mansplained to her by this artist who's painting her. And he gets all, like, lusty after her and, like, tries to touch her. And she's like, no. You know, it's like you're in a museum. Look, but don't touch. And then she tries to go to his art show with all the... Excuse me. His art show with all the paintings of her. And he's like, you can't get in there. Like, it's better for an artist to burn their references and allow the painting to be a mystery. And if you were in there, it would just confuse them. And it's like... Getting at this idea, which I've rarely ever seen explored in art, which is that, like, the concept of the muse is essentially, like, a worker-employer relationship that is incredibly exploitative. Like, she brings it up, like, literally, like, explicitly later, where she's like, you know, if you're in a movie, you get paid for it. But if you pose for a sculpture, like, you're, it's like you basically didn't exist. Right. And so, like, he, the idea that the, the artist is exploiting the muse's labor... Uh, I think is an important idea that doesn't really is kind of underappreciated. But she so she becomes a serial killer in that she inspires these male artists, and then when they achieve the masterwork, she murders them and takes the work, and then sells it to body. And then it becomes sort of like a relationship where we can't tell if she's continuing to do this so she can continue to sell the paintings and have a relationship with body or he becomes increasingly more obsessed with these paintings and encourages her to continue doing it. Yeah, it's also very obvious that the guy who's buying the paint first painting from her is uh, Colonel Mustard. He's like all in silhouette but he has the monocle. But yeah, she gives the guy a, a bottle of uh, he, he mentions like lead white being poisonous. And she gives him a bottle of wine, and he goes back into the art show, and then he, like, dies from poison. And she talks about the... While that's happening, she's talking about the snow coming down and covering everything in a thick lead white. And the implication being she used the paint to poison him. Uh, and then she has the conversation with Mr. Body while Professor Plum is authenticating the painting. And this, like, sort of opens up the idea for there to be more of this. And we get a couple examples of her doing this. There's, like, a photographer that she kind of, like, <laughs> manipulates into drowning at the beach. And she takes his film. Uh, you know, there's a couple of... There's a sculptor where she pushes the sculpture down on him. I like how he's talking about women and then he's murdered by a giant statue of a woman. Yeah. Well, he's like, uh, you know, he talks about, like, art to celebrate. He's talking about the muse thing. And he's he's like, uh, you know, oh, I'm sure you love being the center of attention. And your, your beauty is, like, being frozen forever. And, like, this should be enough for you. And then when he's being crushed by the thing, she's like, what an honor it is for you to be the object of my attention. <laughs> and then she sells this big red sculpture of herself uh, to Mr. Body. And then we see Mrs. Body for the first time. Yeah, and this is one of the clever parts of this story. So Mrs. Body and Mr. Body obviously having some problems in their marriage because Body is obsessed with both Scarlet and purchasing these artworks that are pictures of Scarlet. Yeah, and purchasing murder weapons. And purchase, yeah, just being a weirdo collector. So they have a fight and they're in the car. Where I forget where they're going. 
They're going to some sort of party. And then the car breaks down, so she says, you, you go on your way. I'll take care of this car. And then at the garage, she's murdered. So then there's a panel, a full-page panel of her laying in the garage, murdered, and three men are standing over her. And then you flip the page, and there's like this sort of game that you can play where you can try to guess using... It's almost like a memory game. They show you which guy in the line, without show, like, they show you the middle guy in the line is the murderer. And so it's like, if you can remember, see if you can like remember what like he was holding and what his shoes looked like, and that's going to be like a test of your powers of observation. Right. And then you can sort of guess who murdered her. You don't really get a motive of why she's murdered. You, I kind of think that maybe Body had her killed. Well, the, yeah. I think the implication, which is never, like, explicitly... Like, I mean, I, I think it's just... The, the implication is open that Body could have had her killed. Also, the three guys are holding a rental pipe and some rope when he shows up. So it's like, yeah. There's definitely a, a, an implication that Body had his wife murdered. Uh, but then he's all broken up about it uh, at one point, And it's like... I think that's why the maid tries to connect with him by giving him the murder weapon. is because he takes the the wife's death so hard. Yeah. But then we get, like, we go back into right before Mr. Body is murdered. And he confesses to Scarlet that he never received any death threats. Uh, that he was basically just trying to get her there. Uh, and he confesses her love to her. And they have this conversation about, like... They don't really know each other. He only really knows this image of her. You know, it's this is kind of a vertigo sort of thing. Yeah, so Mr. Bonnie professes his love to her, and he says this thing about how, like, they've done dreadful things. There's this darkness inside of them. This is another implication that he killed his wife. He also tells Professor Plum that he feels like he killed her. Then he gets bopped on the head with the pipe and is killed. And Mr. Plum shows up to tell White about... Uh, the murder he does in a very nerdy way where he says body took a lead pipe to the occipit and then he explains that the occipit means the back of the head. Yeah, so then they're talking some more about this. Um, the police will arrive shortly. Then we get this big nonogram that you can solve to find out where everybody was when the murder happened, which is another way to help you solve this was one, the mystery. I mean, we read the digital version, which kind of felt like if I would have known that there were puzzles to solve, I would have bought a print copy yeah i would recommend if you want to check this book out get the print copy because there are puzzles in it yeah this one's like i i did i did this puzzle but i did it by like taking a screenshot and then using my apple pencil on my ipad to fill it in but if you don't have access to that technology then uh it would be kind of frustrating to do digitally it's an interesting puzzle you know it's like color sudoku yeah, and it's like one of those things that, like I said before, it's kind of like a throwback to like Highlights Magazine where everybody, at some point in their like childhood, they got kind of hooked on doing these sort of words jumbles or logic puzzles or things like that. And this is sort of one of those. But this is really clever because it's color-coded to the colors that are in the board game yeah so it's like the the you're supposed to fill in the colors but there there are also letters on certain spaces and when you color those in with a specific color you put that letter next to the name of the person whose color that responds to and then once you've solved it you have a little jumble you have to solve to figure out where they all are but then uh after that miss scarlet goes into uh mr body's office and she finds 
the evidence that he was basically covering her trail. That the reason that she got away with all these murders is because he was using his resources to cover for her, to let her keep doing this. Which is also like, okay, he was complicit in her crimes. Like, it, Mr. Body is not a, is very, whether or not he killed his wife, he's not a, a good, he is obviously not a good person, like he was saying before, about there being like a darkness in them and that they could find like a kindred spirit. Uh, and then he his like he explains in his notes that his collection is supposed it, it exists to explore um, wickedness this this evil that he feels within himself but it also like in a way kind of reframes his relationship with Scarlet where it's like she is one of the murder weapons he's collecting yeah and it again draws that like the idea between like person and object the function and, and purpose where like he he in a different way than all of the artists, is also objectifying her. But rather than as a piece of art, like she thinks he is, it's as a murder weapon. And she, in effect, because he uh, facilitates her function as a murder weapon, as he as he helps her continue to murder, she, in effect, becomes the murder weapon that he uses. Yeah, and I think this is sort of where it becomes a little more intellectual than the board game. Mm-hmm. But, dun, dun, dun. Someone stabs her. Someone stabs Scarlet. And it starts with this, like, four, a full page, and it's four different colored squares, and it's the peacock, green, white, and red. And then you see her in a sort of, like, a Picasso-style artwork being stabbed. Yeah. And she thinks, like, I gave my heart to no man, but, and then she gets stabbed, and the last thing she thinks is, I'm not heartless, and then she's stabbed. In the heart, by a knife, uh, and then we get this like arrow pointing out into her mouth with text that says, "Her scream echoes through the manor, ricocheting off Body's collection, summoning everyone to her aid." Yeah, and then the next page is like a like a wood like a print, right? Of it's got, very artistic. I guess that's the fitting way for Scarlet to end her life. And she dies facing the sculpture of herself. Like she dies looking at an immortal mirror image of herself. Yeah, I think that's a very... A lot of these touches have like almost like an Agatha Christie kind of like mm-hmm. style where she does this sort of like very artistic, very dramatic, very over-the-top murders or positionings of bodies or and things like that. Because I guess it's supposed to be... If it is not to like a murder party, then it has to be very dramatic. Yeah, I think also one of the influences we didn't really talk about, which I think is present here, is that kind of like artsy violence of like 70s italian cinema well this feels like a shot from like a dario argento movie was body's wife killed with the wrench let me check i believe she was killed with the pipe uh or no i think no i think you're right it is the wrench yeah she was killed with the wrench so that means the wrench the knife the pipe and the gun have all been used as murder weapons Related to Mr. Body. Yeah. So. I like this next. So then it turns to a full page and it's like the background is a fingerprint and it's sort of very modern and it has disembodied heads of Miss Miss White, Miss, Miss Peacock, and Mr. Green and Professor Plum. And he's wearing these like fantastic checkered pants. Which also are the pattern on the board, the map board that right. White shows them. Exactly. 
And then you see Mr. Body, and he looks like he's covered with a piece of paper, mm-hmm. which is kind of like, in my mind, a nod to like the little printed paper notebook that you get to solve the mystery. And instead of seeing his face, he's covered. His face is completely covered with a magnifying glass. And Miss Scarlet is looking down. And then when you look at Miss Scarlet's dress, there's a picture. Oh yeah, of Mr. Body. So he becomes a piece of art in her serial killer art inadvertently so it's kind of really wild it's kind of, it's very surrealist very wild and then it goes into this almost like you were talking about italian film it goes into sort of a very noir looking black and white panels where we see a young miss peacock and her interaction with the mysterious candlestick that has murder in its heart that's my favorite part yeah she she the panels are from a book she's reading a murder mystery right and her dad comes in and we find out that her parents ran this like auction house and they have this old candlestick and he gives her the candlestick and enough candle to last an hour and he's like you can read until the candle goes out and then you got to go to bed which is like her being aware of like murder mystery detective stories but we also get some internal monologue from the candlestick of course. It has a thought balloon saying, she she gives this thing where she talks about how she becomes obsessed with before and after photos, with this transformation. Um, you know, and then how, like, there are essentially before and after photos for crimes, and that to solve a crime, you have to get, she, to solve the crime, you have to enter the secret passage between the pictures, which and is I a think cool it, yeah. idea. And I like this sort of nod to, like, this is the first we're made aware of. The concept of secret passages, even though we know in the game that there are two secret passages. But so she's looking at the before and after photos and she says, God, could I change like this? And the candlestick thinks you're beautiful just as you are, Peacock. So the candlestick is pining for... Yeah, well, the candlestick, I guess, is supposed to... The candlestick is the refutation of the idea that, you know, like, because an object is used in a murder, it wants to do a murder. The candlestick is ultimately the hero of the story, right? Like, the candlestick doesn't have murder in its heart, but it's used for murder. <laughs> so it's a ref- it's the counterpoint to the philosophy espoused by Colonel Mustard and Mr. Body. I also like that there could have been, like, a low-hanging fruit idea of giving the candlestick, like, some kind of anamorphic kind of features. Yeah, it doesn't look like... It doesn't have, like, a face or anything Yeah, it's on not it. like Luminaire from Beauty and the Beast. It's just a regular, but sentient candlestick which i think is pretty great um yeah so then there's another we see that her family dies in a use of another before and after photo uh and then she becomes involved with an older wealthy charismatic diminutive gentleman named milburn who comes to the auction this is like no nate does his like patented chef kiss (laughs) this is like a chef kiss because he is of course rich uncle pennybags (laughs) from monopoly (laughs) Yes, because, like, if you were a kid and you were obsessed with board games, you would also give the same treatment. But then also kind of leaves, like, there could be some kind of, like, offshoot, a series, maybe. Yeah, but it was a board game cinematic, or, well, comic book universe. <laughs> but, yeah, he she mentions that he have, has mob ties, but most rich people do. And then we get, like, the story of their marriage told entirely through before and after photos. Um you know, where their marriage is kind of unhappy. He keeps leaving to go. He has to, he's like, I'm out for the weekend. I got to go to the nearest railroad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Mr. Green sneaks in while Milburn is away and starts to have a torrid love affair 
with Miss Peacock, and he's like wants to be someone that he Milburn knows through the mob. And then eventually, Mister Green takes over narrating, and we get a before and after where he kills Milburn, and it's like the Monopoly Man is reading his newspaper in the house, and then the next panel, it's exactly the same except the candlestick is gone. And there's a, Miss Milburn is gone and there's a splotch of blood on the chair. I like how when he's getting married, he wears a top hat all the time, but when he's getting married, he doesn't wear a top hat. Well, he's got to take it off to get in the church. (laughs) But the the problem with this is like, it's not sustainable because there really aren't that many classic board games with recognizable characters outside of Clue and Monopoly. Yeah. And I think that's why they put him, he was put in there because he's sort of the same iconic and also, he's a symbol of, like, obsession with money and yeah. capitalism. And Peacock kind of has this... She's not like that. Yeah. So he, so this this is my favorite. After he cuckolds Mr. Monopoly, <laughs> murders him and steals his wife, he becomes nervous and suspicious of the candlestick. Yeah, because he uses the candlestick to murder him. Like, right. That's the implication. And now the candlestick is also like a rival for his wife's affection. <laughs> yeah, and they have this fight about it. He makes this insane like point about how they should get rid of old things. And he's flicking the light switch on and on, creating a bunch of before and after photos. But also invoking the power outage that led to Colonel Mustard getting killed. And he eventually... like. Said, ex- confesses to her, sort of, and says that he doesn't like the candlestick because it reminds him of Milburn and he wants to fill their house with new things. I also like that he's a bald-headed man mm-hmm. and the sweat beads are like telling like an additional part of the story because as he gets more and more frantic, he gets more and more sweat bubbles and he gets a bigger shine on the top of his head, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, that's that's a nice touch. <laughs> Um, and then she gives the candlestick to Mr. Body to get rid of it, and then we get a panel of Mr. Plum authenticating it, and he's like, there's a long curly white hair stuck in this. Uh, it appears to be from a mustache, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) And then in exchange for the candlestick, Mr. Body gives Ms. Peacock, uh, gives Peacock this, um, book that he's been reading about, uh, how to how to build secret passages in your home double day how to series <laughs> yes which is an actual series but i don't think they have one where you build secret passages yeah. that was like another thing like those double day how to books were kind of like iconic in like 80, 70s and 80s like you would get them at the grocery store like each week you would get one or you know you'd buy, like everybody's house had a couple of them never a complete set mm-hmm. so at one point like you would like be bored on a rainy day and you'd end up like reading like how to build a shed or like how to organize your tools and, and so these kind of like old outdated books were kind of like in people's dens and rec rooms and their junk rooms so they're kind of like Every kid of, like, the 80s remembers those how-to books. I was obsessed with the ones that were, like, home economics-based, where you could learn how to, like, do cruel embroidery or, like, how to do macrame and stuff like that. And I thought, or, like, furniture upholstery was, like, another, like, fascinating one. Yeah, I'm looking at, it looks like a lot of these are, like, business-oriented. They're, like, how to, how to remember facts and figures, how to manage people. And stuff like that. 
But yeah, that's what I was talking about. It has this very, like, oh, like, it's the story is, like, constructed out of the stuff from your, like, living room. It's like, <laughs> the Monopoly guy's here because you have a copy of Monopoly and here's this how-to book. And, like, all, and, like, there's Everyone puzzles. has an Agatha Christie book, you know? Yeah. The puzzles out of, like, either the, like, 101 puzzles to solve <laughs> or just, like, a copy of Highlights for Children on your coffee table. But the, um... The 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 book has a little diagram that is clearly uh, pencil markings on the title page by Mr. Body question mark is a little observation tag on it and it's crisscross it's S to K and L to C uh, and that becomes important later and then we get like a little bit of the conversation after the first split up where uh. Like, Mr. Green's like, why didn't you tell people that we know each other? And she's like, well, that would make us seem even more suspicious. She's standing by a bookshelf and hears this scream come through the bookshelf. Of course. And then that's Miss Scarlet being murdered, right? Yeah. So then the next panel, they go to the Mr. Body's office. And then also, this is when we get that sort of flashback of Mr. Plum getting the key and he and says, someone is watching me and it's from inside the house. Yeah, and it's white. And she reveals that Miss, that uh, Peacock never took her key, which means that she and Green arrived together and then they split off together and that's suspicious. And uh, she says that she was outside when Mr. Body was killed, which is, uh, you know, how she puts deflects suspicion from herself. And then Professor Plum says it makes perfect sense. You got two to get you two got together after her husband's death, but Peacock has a lavish lifestyle, and Mr. Green isn't wealthy, so you needed a new fortune, Body's fortune. If the rest of us died, the collection would go to Peacock's auction, and Peacock would control it, and she could manipulate it to her and Green's uh, favor. He he explains how they could have killed everybody. He, this is the big like the guess at the end, right? Right. Um, and then the police arrive and they arrest. Uh, Peacock and Green, and then they're both in jail, and it's like the Monopoly space in jail where they're both like behind bars in the center of that diamond, and they're like looking out, and they're all like sad. Uh, also, <laughs> well, all, I mean, ultimately, they're both actually guilty of a murder, but well, it might not be Mr. Bob. Peacock is not guilty of a murder. She's well, 100%. She's, well, she's complacent, she knows her husband was murdered. She, and she, she, chose, she chose not to look into it. <laughs> she does say that she chose not to look into it, but she doesn't definitively know that her husband was murdered by her new husband. But yeah, you're right. They're not great people. They're not the best people. <laughs> um, yeah, and then uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Green tries to fight the Bobbies that arrived to arrest him. Right, because that's what an American gangster would do. He wouldn't be taken down so easily. Also, they clearly look like... Uh, the one that tackles him is clearly supposed to be like Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> also, I think that kind of like... Um, the boyfriend, Mrs. White's boyfriend, kind of looks a little bit like a mix between like Charlie Brown and like Dagwood. Yeah, yeah. Because he shows back up at the funeral because he's trying to win her back. And she's thinking about how Mr. Body had all these secrets and no, secrets and no one really grasped his collection... Except for, you know, the one guy who authenticated and appreciated it all. And we cut to, you know, sometime later, the mailman has turned up again and he gives Mr. Plum a letter from White saying that she there she's uh, giving him Mr. Body's collection. Right. But then 
cut to prison. Dun, dun, dun. Mr. Green and Mrs. Peacock are separated. And, and they're serving hard time in the prison. And <laughs> her bunkmate is like, we're thinking about, uh, me and some of the girls have been talking about the nature of objects. Yeah. <laughs> Take this spoon, for instance. It could be a shovel if it wanted to. To me, it could build an underground tunnel if you want it. If it wanted to, you get me? And she's like, yeah, it could. But it needs our help. And like that's the big refutation where it's like, you know, a lot of this book, I think, is like a story of people who absolve themselves of guilt by denying the existence of free will. And this is a refutation of that, right? Yeah, and I think also it's sort of the same concept of the candlestick. This spoon is now becoming more than just an ordinary object and becoming an artifact. Yeah. Because it's going to be used... In a prison break. In a prison break. But, but that gets her thinking, though. Yeah, she asks her about secret passages, and she's like... She starts thinking about it, and she puts together that the note in the front is like a map of the secret passages in Bobby's house. Study the kitchen, lounge the conservatory, and that helps her put together that the actual murderer was Professor Plum, who used the secret passages to his advantage. He was the one who knew about the whole collection and everything. He was beside... It turns out Mr. Green was right... Because he was beside the gun when Colonel Mustard was shot, uh, which means he, you know, he killed Colonel Mustard and then used the secret passages to move around the house and murder Scarlet and Body to make it, but make it look like he couldn't possibly have done it because he was banking on no one knowing about the secret passages. But she figured it out, and then the ending happens, and the ending is wild. I think this is my favorite part. Like Professor Plum is like living his lush lifestyle. He's surrounded by the objects the murder objects and the paintings and he's got like this sweet purple robe on yeah and he light and he's got the, the wrench just casually sitting on the table and he's lighting the candlestick and then dun, dun, dun. he goes and he makes his malted milk and honey he goes to bed and then she whistles out the window we get a maze to solve to lead the whistle to the candlestick on plum's window which then falls over while thinking, this is for Peacock, and burns down Plum's <laughs> house. But then we get a before and after where he's in bed and the fire is raging after he's at the pearly gates, before there's his house, after it's rubble. So the murderer was the candlestick. <laughs> yeah. And then she, Peacock, escapes through the secret passage dug by the spoon. We also get a sort of symbolic before and after of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, but then the butterfly becomes pinned in a collection. And then we get before and after, once upon and ever after. Like, the idea, like, this, all this stuff is ending. This freedom is fleeting. She goes to visit uh, Mr. Green, and she says that she's going to get him out of there. And, he's, and the last thing she says is, Body thought there was an evil in all men, but I don't think so. I think there's just a little flame, and that fire can burn, but can also choose to illuminate or keep someone warm. What I mean is to me, you're good. And then in the last panel, he is replaced with the candlestick. Well, then it dawned on me when I was reading this that Mr. Green kind of looks like the candlestick the whole time. Yeah, because the candlestick's like all round and shiny. And it's got like these sort of like um, little like bumps on it that look like his shiny bald head. So she, in essence, falls in love with like a male version of this candlestick that she's had <laughs> since childhood that she's been in love with, who also seems to be in love with her and yeah. is willing to murder Professor Plum to save her. Well, murder. 
Oh yeah, the candlestick does murder <laughs> Professor Plum. Because yeah. he says for, it's for you, Peacock, or something like that. But then in the end, it's also like Colonel Mustard is right, and the candlestick does have murder in its heart, <laughs> but it does it for good. And so it's about like the context and the motivation and consequences of the action, and like that's what she's getting at. It's like men are are beings that murder. Like we're people can be murder tools. A person is a thing that can do murder, but that doesn't mean it wants to, and that doesn't mean that it's always evil yeah and i think it's i it's very interesting and i also think it's interesting that she goes back to see him even though she's free yeah but we don't see what happens to the candlestick presumably he perished in the same fire yeah r.i.p candlestick (laughs) the title character of the comic and the true hero (laughs) the candlestick that's what makes it so great i mean it's just fabulous yeah uh there's a bunch of bath matter there's like a little thing that um yeah like a little essay yeah which goes into the thing you were talking about like the murder parties and like these games that involve murder and simulating murder and how they sort of let us deal with these like life and death things i did read this but one of the things that i thought was interesting and we'll talk about this on another podcast but i'm right in the middle of reading ready player two mm-hmm. by ernest klein which has a lot of references to dungeon dragons but he shaw talks about in this essay that those murder parties were like proto dungeons and dragons role-playing games where people would get together and play as characters almost like larping mm-hmm. to solve a mystery and that kind of led to this like fascination that people have with role-playing games which i think is interesting it is interesting i would love to see him do some other stuff like this like to tackle other games or weird concepts because he the fact that this is what he got out of make a comic about clue is like it's i think it's genuinely inspiring like i think like I like a lot of licensed comics and art, not because I'm like a corporate shill and I just like seeing things that I recognize, but I, it's sort of the same reason that I like um, Christmas music. I like seeing people work under constraints and seeing the weird ideas you come up with when you have to express yourself under constraints. Obviously, the, where it goes wrong is when the corporation has too much of a hand and they sort of like, the constraints become too much and they push out your personal feelings or whatever. But sometimes when it's something like this... Where they're given, the, like, the constraint of, like, make a Clue comic, but they're allowed to go wild and explore all their sort of personal fascinations, but they have to work them in under this specific umbrella. It leads to something really cool and interesting. I think also, I mean, you, like, your generation is sort of in the generation where there was, like, the rise of, like, branded tie-ins. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of like, we talked a lot about like, when we were putting up the Christmas tree, a lot of our Christmas ornaments were branded tie-ins from when you were younger. And we were like, where did we get this Dr. Seuss from? And we're like, oh, we got it from Burger King when they had this like thing when the movie came out. Like we'd have all these branded things. So I think the concept of like branded or corporate produced content is kind of like a special like Easter egg almost that you could get. Like that's different from like usual things yeah maybe i could also see like we grow up saturated with this brand stuff and it's like you know this is like the twist on it's like the same way that like you know someone like tim burton sort of reappropriated the aesthetics of like leave it to beaver and shit like that and made edward scissorhands it's like this is the equivalent of them regurgitating the like 
branded tie-in in a sort of more artistic way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, I, You know what, I just, because I'm looking at one of the last panels, there's like a, a couple, just like The Wicked and the Divine, there's a couple of like... They're variant all, covers. Yeah, variant covers. And one of the things that I thought about the whole time that I was reading this is... It's very abstract, it's very surreal, but it really takes a nod, takes like a lot of influence from like the surrealist illustrators. Mm-hmm. So like one of the ones that I was looking at with the first variant cover really reminded me of like Magritte and like Max Ernst. So I think like his style is very modern, very abstract, very surrealist. Which which one are you talking about? T- the one where it's Colonel Mustard and he's holding that, and then you see like oh, the yeah. half, pa- half face of... Um, Mrs. White. That's a very sort of McGrick kind of thing where you see like a, a face that almost looks like a painting of a face that looks like a sculpture is kind of the thing. Yeah, this, I think this is like a wraparound. I think maybe multiple covers had pieces of this image. Yeah. And they connected. Yeah, that that one's done by Dashaw himself. And yeah. it's really cool. And then I love this one that is peacock's profile and the candlestick is in the middle and then you see professor plum and they're they're all really great sort of but they have the things that are sort of like a surrealist thing that there's the the doves those are all connected oh they're all connected i thought that you knew that that's what i was saying where it was like they're they're that's one big image okay so yeah because i guess the the orientation of my tablet is portrait and not landscape yeah but it's sort of it in that way, then it moves from like a Magritte to like an Ernst to a Picasso. Mm-hmm. And then finally, at the end, there's this one that's sort of very cartoonish. Yeah, it's a Kevin Huizenga cover. Um, but it's also very sister, like eyes, and the candlestick is in the middle of the eyes, and it's like the nose, uh, and there's like doves floating around. And then you get, you can get like cards that you can cut out that you can use. You just use the board from the game and you can cut out the cards that he has designed. And then also you can get my favorite is the last part is you get a coloring page of the wraparound that you can, excuse me, that you can color any way you want. Yeah, they did that for a couple for the other covers too. Um, Just like this like black and white uh, printing of it. The other thing I was going to say is I think what's cool about this, one of the things that's cool about this is uh, this story absolutely has to be Clue. Like, the only, like, it is a story that is about Clue, the board game. All the stuff about objects and stuff, it needs the physical, real-world artifact of the game board for the story to work. Um, you could tell this story and, like, it would be one level of abstraction removed, and that might be too far. Like, you could do it in any, you could just have the characters and the iconography invoke clue and it's up to the reader to be like oh this is basically a clue comic but that is like an extra step you have to take that is like uh, can could potentially color your it could potentially color your view of the story yeah i don't think it would have worked if it wasn't clue because i think a lot of the imagery is it's so color and weapon specific Mm -hmm. that you need that yeah, but I think this is a thing where, um, you know, like I've talked before, maybe on some podcast somewhere, about how I think like Blade Runner 2049 is a really good sequel because it's totally different from the original. 
but because of it, it is a direct commentary on the original, it has to be a sequel. You couldn't just make that movie and have it be its own thing. And I think that that's something that people should look at when they try to make sequels and stuff. I feel the same way about this and, like, licensed adaptations. Or if this is, like, a really good story that also has to be Clue. So it's like, you know, if you keep those two things in mind and try to tread the line this does, you can end up making something really cool while also getting a nice hefty paycheck from, you know, Hasbro or whatever. I also kind of think that this might not have been what they expected, but it's a really sort of innovative, like, modern take on, like, an interpretation of, like, something. Like, we're... We're in this sort of, not so much now because of the pandemic, but maybe in the last couple of years, we've been getting a lot of, like, movies that are based on things that movies shouldn't be based on. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> gone on for a while. But, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, they're supposed to be making, like, a Tetris movie. There's, like, all this stuff like that. Uh, but I think, like, I hope we get more of this. I would love to see, like, cool, idiosyncratic artists I like get caught a nice paycheck from a big company, but to still be able to deliver something that is very much their vision and fits in with the rest of their work and has something to say. I was thinking about this because this is sort of a very rando thing, but there was a big thing about the fact that The Great Gatsby has moved into the public domain. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, wouldn't it be fantastic if he made a graphic novel based on the characters from The Great Gatsby, but it was a mystery. I think that would be really cool. I would, I would love to see that. Yeah, I think that's really kind of like right in his wheelhouse. It's very... This comic is sort of very avant-garde, but it's not unapproachable, which I kind of think is like happens a lot with avant-garde things. Mm-hmm. People are like, I don't get it. I remember, like, I didn't see the announcement for this, uh, but I just saw, like, Clue Candlestick, number one. And I was like, oh, Clue comic. And then it was like... Dash Shaw, and I was like, <laughs> "Hold up, I gotta read this." And I was like, really, like taken aback by just how good it was, and like how much work he was putting into it. And then I remembered, I was like, "Oh, this is like these are the same people that let Tom Scioli go buck wild on Transformers versus GI Joe." So I was like, "I hope this is like part of a bigger trend." This reminded me; it didn't really have anything relatable to it, but the whole time I was reading it, I thought, like, this is like. Jason, like when we read those yeah, two, yeah. and like I was thinking, like, what if they made a comic together? That would be crazy. And it was just like, I would love to see that. This sort of unlike fettered imagination with no restrictions, like no, like you know, this is a corporation that could have said no. This yeah. is this is not what we want. We're not even going to publish this. I think that's kind of like to have that sort of freedom to let artists create whatever. They want, no matter how wacky and how, like, out there. I mean, other companies might have been like, this doesn't fit the brand. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a problem. But for some reason, Hasbro yeah. was like, yeah, okay. I'm going to put this, I'm going to manifest this to the universe. You don't have to give me any credit or pay me. <laughs> but if, I don't know if Hasbro owns it or not. But I, you know, if you can get the license to Scotland Yard and you want to throw my boy Jason some money <laughs> to make a Scotland Yard comic, I would be hundred percent on board with that. Can you imagine his like Mr. X and he's like clearly a dog with the mask on? Ooh, it would be so good. That is a game that is very near and dear to our hearts. I spent a lot of time playing that as a child and then 
we introduced that to you and your cousins, and then we also spent a long a lot of your childhood playing that game. So that is a fantastic. Yeah, game. and I played it a bunch with my friends. I, I remember one of my friends was like, "Oh, I saw the Scotland Yard game," and I was like, "Fucking get it, get Scotland Yard. It's good <laughs> as hell." So that's a recommendation. To anyone, if you want a cool board game to play, look for Scotland Yard. Uh, it's a fun little like chase game. You'll dig it. It's a good time. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it's also one of those things where you get to be like. It's almost like Munchkin, the Adventure Time version, where it, it allows you to be mean to other people. Yeah, and, there's and lots of room fun. for trash talk and taunting <laughs> and giving your family supervillain speeches as you slip out of their grasp on the by catching a boat across the Thames. Yes. But yeah, so that was Clue Candlestick. I, I would t- highly recommend it. Uh, it was a good time. I'm glad I wanted to do this on the podcast cause specifically because I was like, I thought you would enjoy it. Oh, I definitely enjoy anything that has to do with detectives or mysteries, so I really did enjoy that. And I really, I also am a huge fan of modern art, so mm-hmm. I feel like this also has a, like a large nod to like modern contemporary art, which I think is very, very nice. Yeah, this is also good because like Body World and Bottomless, Body, Bottomless Belly Button are really long. So this was like a nice digestible way to talk about this artist that I like on the on the podcast. So what do we have coming up next? All right, so this is the end of February, right? Right. So we're going to get into March. We're obviously recording this way in advance. I hope that this March is not the monster that last March was. <laughs> but we're going to read uh, Ragnarok by A.S. Byatt, right? That's, yeah, definitely. Uh which is, you know, it's a take on Norse mythology. I think that's going to be really interesting to talk about. We've talked about Norse mythology here and there before with, like, the Wicked and the Divine and Sandman. So this is a very within the dried-up brain wheelhouse. I think also we haven't read any A.S. Byatt, and I feel like she's one of my favorite writers, and mm. I kind of, some of her books I really like, and I feel like it's an interesting introduction to her as well because she does a sort of very intellectual literary writing which is kind of like hit hits high point like in the 80s have you had you read this one before i have i don't remember if i have read this one before or not this predates my goodreads keeping track of what i've read yeah but this is relatively more recent work in the wholeness of her oeuvre this is from right this century i also love this sort of sister feud that she's had with her sister for over 50 years at this point which i think is fantastic we'll talk about that we'll talk we'll do some background on her we'll talk about her whole deal uh but then we're gonna do our last one shot before we get into our next big series we're gonna do a comic that i'm really excited to talk about called my favorite thing is monsters by emil ferris uh it's a sort of a coming of age story it's actually i think it's very much of a piece of the the, the sort of works that we were talking about when we were talking about Michael Shabon in the Gentleman of the Road thing, it's like a coming of age story that deals a lot with like the relationship between like youth and like pop culture. It's about a girl who's like obsessed with monsters and sort of understands herself and her life through this lens of like universal movie monsters. The whole thing is drawn in this really cool um, like ballpoint pen style, like okay. on like notebook paper. My understand, I'm pretty sure she wrote and drew the whole comic while she was recovering from West Nile virus. Oh, okay. Uh, but, so it definitely has like a middle school project. Yeah, but like 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 a 
total like child prodigy in yes. middle school. It's what you think your middle school comics look like when you're drawing <laughs> them in middle school. Um, but yeah, I think that's gonna, one's going to be really interesting to talk about. There's and. Uh, then on that episode, we'll announce the next series, though I think we maybe accidentally already did that in the Third Man episode, but uh, whatever. Did I just blurt it out? I think I did it, oh, to okay. be honest. All right, that's not me. I, so, I, spoiler alert, it wasn't me. But, uh, yeah, so that's going to be for March. We're going to do those two things. I think those are both going to be really cool episodes, so spoiler alert, stay, stay tuned. tuned.